Hello, and welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm Catherine McKay, and today we have a special presentation for you on the She Research Podcast. We're featuring the Miles Little Lecture from 2022, which was presented by Professor Jackie Leach Scully, who's the Director of the Disability Innovation Institute at the University of New South Wales. And her talk, well, it's complicated. Disability bioethics, disability activism, and something approaching the truth. This episode is a little longer than our normal episodes, but we hope that you'll enjoy it anyway. Here's Professor Jackie Leach Scully with her talk. So I want to start by um, saying some words about Miles. In the publicity for this talk, it says um, Emeritus Professor John Miles Little, born 1932. Uh, is a surgeon, philosopher and poet whose scholarship has been central to the beginnings and growth of bioethics and the medical humanity in Australia. I actually saw Miles uh, on Tuesday um, and I, I believe he's hoping to be zooming in on this, so not, um, not physically present. And since I first met him, which I think was in 2005, he's been an example to me in his approach to bioethics. So, bringing grounded knowledge uh, and, and an interest in the particular to a theoretical rigour and acknowledging the role in health and medicine of uh, embodied and emotional aspects of human experience. Those elements often slip out of sight in academic writing. And also, above all, I think, respecting those communities that often get squeezed to the sides and to the margins uh, of academic writing, whether that's um, patients or women or people with disability. In this lecture, I want to track how bioethics has handled disability, but particularly bioethics in general, but particularly how disability bioethics as an academic activity have been related to activism for disability rights and disability inclusion. I think there are inevitably points of tension where the, the needs of academic disability bioethics and of disability activism um, come into conflict. I'm going to be focusing on a particularly contested area, um, how conflict arises in issues of knowledge and truth. I'm suggesting that those tensions are probably inevitable. Uh, but at the end, I'm going to make um, what I've said here are recommendations. And by the time you get to the final slide, I've downgraded them to observations. For the moment. Um, some observations, not so much about how to avoid these conflicts and tensions, but how to manage them better to everybody's benefit. And some of what I'm saying is specific to disability and disability bioethics. But I hope it's also in some ways more generally applicable to bioethics, various kinds of engagement with what we might call social justice movements of different kinds. A lot of what I'm going to be saying is also quite theoretical, and it's also largely from the academic perspective of the academic activist Diane. But um, in the spirit of mild level bioethics, what I'm saying also draws on um, personal experience as a disabled activist and uh, academic over the years. I was going to say over how many years, though, but I thought I'd skip that one. Bioethics and activism in general. Now, bioethics is, as you all know, a broad field that considers the moral aspects of medicine and the life sciences. 
bioethics have a lot of different origin stories, but one of them says that it rose out of the patient uh, activist movements of 60s and 70s uh, and, and the commitment of various physicians and, uh, and lawyers and philosophers to that activism. And so while the traditional disciplines of academic bioethics, you know, the big four, philosophy, theology, law, medicine, uh, and also social sciences, while they don't lend themselves uh, immediately to activism, apparently, there are reasons why bioethics, more than other fields, has to confront those kinds of tensions between academia and social justice activism, and I'll be going through some of those. One of those is um, its role in bioethics, role in guiding policy and regulation. Bioethics and bioethicists are regularly required to help design some kind of framework for the ethically acceptable use of a novel technology or a novel healthcare intervention. Reproductive technologies, genetic technologies, or even pandemic measures. Much of the bioethical discourse that goes, therefore, goes on in contexts aren't especially academic, but they are in it involves sitting in rooms, some metaphorical or literal rooms, uh, with policymakers, uh, with practitioners, uh, often engaging with groups who have a vested interest in making sure that a vested interest <laughs> in making sure that I am audible to <laughs> all concerned. Vested interest in making sure that they, those new technologies are used to you know, their benefit. A second reason is that um, awareness, going back to some of bioethics origins, uh, that there are some people and some groups that are considered more vulnerable to harm in a medical or research context, and that there is a need to protect such vulnerable groups. And I put those groups, vulnerable groups, in scare quotes there, because as we know, there's a lot of de more debate nowadays about what we actually mean by vulnerable and why those groups are vulnerable, and how bioethics and biomedicine should also address that vulnerability. And that sort of awareness has shifted along with um, medicine shift in understanding professional responsibilities to patients. So we've seen a move from medical paternalism to things like shared or supported decision-making. And it's also shifted with um, societal changes in, in terms of our understanding of things like the rights to self-determination and participation of particular marginalised groups of people. And this has in turn led to bioethics becoming increasingly aware of and influenced by um, the distinctive experiences of certain groups and what um, I'm, the rise of what I'm calling here um, adjectival bioethics, for want of a better term, things like feminist bioethics, black bioethics, indigenous bioethics, and what I'm talking about today disability bioethics. So from the mid 1980s onwards, I've been involved in disability rights activism, um, activism of other kinds as well. And I was trying to find uh, one of the few pictures or photos I have of me, you know, actually being an activist, which is me on a clause 28 March in something like 1987, um, busy smiling at a woman police officer. Um, but I couldn't find that one, so you'll just have to take it for, as, as read. Um, I've been involved in disability rights activism particularly, both in terms of general goals of inclusion um, and 
and some targeted campaigns to um, change laws, for example. Most recently here in Australia, I've been working with disabled people's organisations during COVID for issues around um, triage and access to critical care. And on the horizon, uh, a little cloud heading this way over the horizon, uh, are issues to do with voluntary assisted dying and how that is going to be, how it will affect and be received by the disability community. So activism actually predates my involvement with bioethics. Um, and not surprisingly, when I moved into bioethics, disability concerns were influencing uh, a lot of my thinking. And in particular, I was struck by the way that, um, as many others have been, that so much of, of medicine is actually about preventing or curing or ameliorating uh, conditions that are disabling. So it's actually a very, very central part of bioethics uh, attention. But that centrality is actually really made explicit. We talk about health and disability sort of out there on the periphery. The problem that arises if the central bit fails or not. Equally striking was the way that at least back then, um, bioethicists felt very free to build normative claims and give policy input in issues that were very salient to disability um, on the back of no or very little empirical knowledge or experience um, of disability or of taking account of anything other than a purely medical model. The deaf American bioethicist Teresa Blankmeyer Burke um, cites the philosopher um, who I'm, on whom I have compassion, so I'm not actually going to name him here, um, writing on reproductive autonomy, who argued for the life-limiting impact of deafness on the basis that deaf people can't drive, um, play sports, join the armed forces, uh, or enjoy music, which would be news to many of us here. So in some work that I published actually now some time ago, some years ago, I drew a distinction um, between the bioethics of disability and disability bioethics. Um, there's the cover. Don't all rush out and buy it because it's in your libraries and it's also very expensive. The bioethics of disability I identified as being what we normally do in bioethics. It's identifying morally endorsable ways um, in which health and social care interventions can be applied to or used with uh, disabled people. And I tried to distinguish that from disability bioethics, which is more to do with exploring and examining issues, bioethical issues, from within the perspective of people with disability and using that information as a basis for normative reflection and thinking. I think it's important to point out that that doesn't mean that the bioethics of disability is in some sense wrong. Um, it's just inadequate for a whole account, especially in terms of its epistemic limits uh, and the assumptions that life with different kinds of impairment and different kinds of disability, particularly everyday life, which I'll be emphasizing later on, that that can all be easily imagined uh, from outside the experience. Those epistemic inadequacies are particularly important because in so many areas of bioethics, what we're being asked to do is to make judgments as to whether an intervention is morally um, obligatory or at least endorsable based on evaluating the quality of life of a person with or without that intervention. So evaluating often in context of prenatal uh, care, for example, um, the quality of life lived with impairment. 
And I've been particularly interested in the ethics of prenatal testing and screening and anomaly. And the central part of that are questions of whether the predicted effect of an impairment on someone's future is severe enough, bad enough to warrant um, intervention or sometimes to warrant inter uh, termination of pregnancy or the use of something like pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And similar considerations hold about evaluating quality of life, although sort of less dramatically, for things like the allocation of resources in health and social care for people with disability or for surgical interventions uh, in infancy. There's an abundance of evidence to show that actual experience can significantly alter personal evaluations of quality of life uh, or, or cause a change in life circumstances can, sure, can cause different values um, or capacities to be prioritized than, than were before. The bioethics of disability, I think for obvious reasons, because of the close association between bioethics and biomedicine, has tended to reflect what, uh, what's called the, the medical model of disability, which is broadly speaking, the belief that disability is fundamentally a deviation and ideally a, a quantifiable deviation from some kind of biological norm, a measurable biological norm. And that places the problem, if you like, of disability squarely in the fact of a faulty body. Most of us are now familiar, I think, with the way that um, people with disability and activists really push back against that understanding of disability and impairment. The main alternative that arose in the 1970s in the United Kingdom and then spread uh, is what is generally called you know, the social model although that term refers to a sort of whole family of um, approaches or models. But all of them, broadly speaking, um, share the view that the problem of disability, that the reason why we make efforts to uh, prevent or cure it, doesn't lie solely in the body, or in the fact of having a non-normative body form or function. But it's more to do with some kind of mismatch between that body and an environment, physical or social or an attitudinal environment um, that doesn't accommodate that non-normativity. So the social model has been revolutionary in changing attitudes towards people with disability, in changing their self-understanding and, and also their political power. It's worth noting in passing, I think, that the original architects of that UK social model back in the 70s were, uh, they were not exactly diverse in terms of um, either sex or impairment uh, or class either. They were largely speaking working class and middle class white men who had spinal cord injuries and were wheelchair users. And so understandably, they focused their attention on what mattered most to them. And what mattered most was being barred from work. And so they saw the core issue in disability as being about barriers to participation in the workforce and social life in general. And that the way to resolve all that was to create a level playing field uh, on which disabled people could effectively be employed and be active on equal terms. So in a way, you can say that that version, at least of the social model, is also inadequate, but in a different way that fails to capture a lot of what we would now acknowledge is the experience of disability. And in fact, it was largely um, women activists at the time who were continuing to emphasize the, um, the psychological and emotional and cultural aspect of impairment, 
they were talking about issues like pain uh, and loneliness or fear or stigmatization. Um, that aren't all of those issues that aren't actually necessarily resolved by providing ramps, you know, important that that is. Indeed, from the point of view of the feminists at that time, the disability movement was very male in the sense of being very focused on access to public life uh, and being able to pass as normal, being a normal man. And so from the outset, it's feminist perspectives that were able to carry an, an element of ambiguity and complexity. So for bioethics as an activity, these social relational models of disability have brought the crucial insight, I think, that at least some of the disadvantageous aspects of, dis of disabled people's lives um, aren't biologically determined. And this is clearly important when you're evaluating quality of life. If you're evaluating a life with poor health, or educational attainment, or employment, and so on, or unemployment. And that turns out to be not intrinsic to the impairment, but have rather more to do with societal responses to the impairment. And until recently, these considerations were taken, I think, to fall well outside bioethics with men. And I can't tell you the number of times in the early 2000s when I would give a talk, and afterwards somebody would say, no, that, that's really, really interesting, but it's not actually bioethics, is it? So widening that analysis, that idea of disability and the analysis of quality of life to take account of these broader factors, social factors and so on. I think there's often a difficult adjustment for mainstream bioethics um, to make. And again, feminist bioethics has a much longer tradition of being able to do so, of taking bioethical analysis out of the clinic and the hospital and into the wider world. And that's another reason why disability bioethics has found itself so closely uh, allied with feminist bioethics. Now, given this history, because it underlines, I think, the inseparable nature of disability theory and activism, and I'm countering one of the presumptions that there often is, that the two of them actually have very little to do with each other. The conceptualization of disability that is caught in the social model gave real power and real momentum to movements for disability rights. They shifted the responsibility, if you, if you want to call it that, for disablement from the individual with the, you know, with the monkey body to the social, or at least partially. And it challenged per perceptions of disability as inevitably miserable and dependent existence. It also helped to make disability part of wider moves towards social inclusion. So the success of the activist rights movement has been evidenced by the uptake of that social model, or at least a version of the social model, um, through disability discrimination legislation nationally and internationally, social services policy, and so on. And a key success, of course, was the adoption of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in 2006, which in Article 1 says... Persons with disabilities include those who have long-term physical, mental, intellectual, sensory impairment, which, in interaction with various barriers, may hinder their full and effective participation in society on an equal basis with others. That is very standard social model uh, language, and that would not have happened 20 years previously. But at the same time as all of these gains, 
the relations between the disability movement and bioethics as a field were probably um, at their worst, at their nadir. In 1985, uh, the Australian philosopher Peter Singer, together with Helga Kuzer, published Should the Baby Live? The Problem of Handicapped Infants, highly controversial text. This isn't the place to go into the larger controversy uh, to do with uh, Singer. Um, we could do that later on if you wish. But the results for many disabled people's attitude towards uh, bioethics have been catastrophic. The Singer described, uh, and you can see there, here's a, um, a demonstration against uh, Singer's against one of uh, Singer's talks in, in public by a group of disability activists. Uh, and Singer described by a disability activist as a public advocate of genocide of people with disability and bioethics as a discipline often, and bioethicists uh, often equated with eugenics and eugenicists. And these difficulties often persist today. And it's against this background that bioethicists with an interest in disability uh, or who are themselves disabled have been negotiating, if you like, their involvement uh, in disability activism. And this is important, I think, for understanding um, some of what I'm going to be talking about later, which is how close the engagement between bioethics and activism, disability bioethics and disability activism, generated peculiar uh, new problems for academic disability bioethics. This is where I take a lunge into the personal, really. Because um, around the first decade of the 21st century, um, as the disability rights movement was quite properly becoming more secure, more confident, and more powerful, I began to notice that conversations about disability, uh, it's an ontology, you know, where it comes from and what it means, began to feel increasingly constrained by a kind of orthodoxy. If disabling social barriers are removed, the problem of disability will disappear. And once you do that, all disabled people can be economically productive. Um, disability is an arbitrary social construct. Everyone, we are all dis disabled in some way. Um, impairments and disabilities are mere differences or neutral variations. And that trying to prevent disability is discriminatory. Uh, and if it's prenatal, um, it's eugenic as well. I want to emphasize that the issue is not that any of these statements are untrue. There's a kernel of truth in all of them. The issue is that those statements were going not so much unchallenged as unnuanced. Um, we have to acknowledge that they were not the whole story and that wasn't happening. So I want to pause this account here of disability activism and take a sideways look a simultaneous set of events within disability studies, and I hope you'll see the connection uh, shortly. This was particular perspectives that were emerging at the time, they continue to have quite a strong influence within disability studies and also uh, within some areas of bioethics. Um, broadly speaking, you could say they come under the heading of critical disability theory. It's particularly an approach that has been influenced by post-structuralist thinking, and it's also very interested in the possibilities of technology and the technological um, modifications and adaptations of, of the body. And that was part of what made it appealing, I think, to bioethicists as well as uh, within disability studies. It, it sort of pushes beyond the traditional understandings of the normal body 
body capacities, the limits to the body, sometimes literally the physical limits of the question of, you know, why should our bodies end at the skin, the classic uh, article title. And again, I want to emphasize that these, these takes, these perspectives, in many ways, provide a really valuable questioning of those conventions and what we take for granted as being normative embodiment, normal embodiment, and the social and cultural parameters that define acceptable forms of bodies and that then get imported into medicine and healthcare and that bioethics have to think about. And all of this has major ethical implications for disability. The problem for me was that these approaches often appear totally uninterested in the materiality of disability. Describing the body as you know, one of the hands, this is the body is, is an encompassing connectivity that is untroubled by structure, form, or identity. It's interesting, it's intriguing, it's very challenging, it stretches our thinking, but I question whether it reflects the lived experience of any person with disability, and it is certainly not going to help you get access to the NDIS. That's kind of making a caricature of it, but I think there's a real problem there. And the reason I mention this um, is that the lack of interest, disinterest in the material reality, those material aspects of the disabled body, has an unexpected resonance with, and it helps to reinforce what I described earlier is that emerging oversimplification of the activist discourse, that the common feature between the two, which is sort of surprising, because they're almost at two ends of a, of a different kind of continuum. The common feature is sidestepping engagement with the mundane and um, grubby sometimes detail of disabled lives, the diversity and the contradictoriness of that experience, which is what disability bioethics um, tries to examine. I'm not naive enough to think that that kind of oversimplification isn't necessary, and it's often necessary to achieve political goals. And it has enabled disability rights to be seen as just the next obvious step in a modern pattern of uh, inclusion of different kinds of marginalized groups, of becoming sensitized to discrimination on the grounds of sex and religion and ethnicity and class and sexual orientation and indigeneity and so on, cynically, all those things that are listed at the bottom of job adverts nowadays, with disability being the one added, and most recently added. And you know, politically, socially, ethically, growing inclusion is a good thing. But, and this is why I know some people in the audience and watching might want to challenge me later, I would argue that we can only see it as the next obvious step alongside all those other inclusions, through glossing over some awkward, complicating factors. Disability is different from most of those other groupings for this reason. For most of those other groupings, it's possible to imagine remaking the world in such a way that the problems of discrimination and, ex and exclusion do just disappear. You can fantasize, uh, you know, waking up one morning, everybody wakes up one morning, we've all forgotten the history of racism. It's no longer there. There's no evidence of it out there. You can imagine the world being so arranged that being embodied as Black or Asian or in other contexts of being a woman or being gay makes no difference to life prospects and flourishing. And that just isn't true in quite the same way for disability. Disability is a social construction in the sense that it's an idea that we've developed. But it's an idea that's been developed around an observable reality 
of embodied difference. And sometimes that is different enough to be problematic. As the social model argues, there are impairments in whether the right reorganisation of, of attitudes and social barriers with that right of, uh, reorganisation, the resulting level of disablement would, um, would be trivial or might dis no, disappear altogether. But there are many others where absolutely no rearrangement of social furniture is going to remove all disadvantage and suffering. The medical sociologist, disability uh, writer, Carol Thomas, who died earlier this month, called these impairment effects. That's things like the pain and the breathlessness or the seizures or the incontinence that would still be there after perfect access has been achieved. And so in many cases would intellectual impairment. For example, my, my own deafness would be rendered trivial if there was universal free captioning, um, that was at least moderately accurate, at least mm -hmm. on NBC. Mm -hmm. um, signing, uh, induction loops, things like that. That would all remove barriers to communication. But none of that would do anything for the tinnitus that I occasionally experience. And for that, I need a medical intervention. So going back to that historical timeline, from around the mid-2000s then, I was finding myself in discussions of disability rights um, or healing arguments being put forward by activist groups, where I was uncomfortable with what seemed to me to be an ideology about disability. And you ch challenge that ideology in public, at least at your peril. Sometimes in private, those same people would agree with me that the experience of disability was more amb ambiguous, ambivalent, was more complex than they were allowing in public. But they emphasised that the strategic need was to keep things simple. And I could see you know, the strategic need, the necessity for that. As some of you will have heard me say before, if you want to have a public movement, a popular public movement, what you need is those short, punchy slogans like Black Lives Matter or hashtag Me Too. And nobody has ever rushed out onto the streets to gather around a banner that says something like, well, it's all really complicated. Why don't we sit down and have a talk about it and see where we can get to? It, it just doesn't work. So, in a, in a sense, complexity, we, we can agree, can be counterproductive in a political sense when it dilutes the power, the clarity of an emancipatory message, or when it exposes divisions within a movement which is supposed to have you know, a united face um, to the public. The argument then was that showing disability to be diverse and dynamic and relational, contextual and so on was confusing and, and it would effectively weaken those political calls to change attitudes and enable access. And government bodies on the whole, you know, they want the simplest possible solution to a complex problem. They don't want to be told that the solution is as complex as the problem. In particular, that putting any focus on the biological impairment would look like a retreat from seeing disability as a social issue and a slide back towards seeing the problem as being located in the individual body itself. So for disability activism, leaving out that nuance uh, wasn't so problematic. But that pressure to reduce complexity, I think, presents present some serious threats to the intellectual integrity of academic disability bioethics. Some of those threats include um, what I've got up here. 
there's a risk of groupthink capture. And that's where you become so enmeshed in the goals of, of the movement and so encultured in its ways of thinking to the point of being unable to bring that kind of necessary critique. There can be a kind of critical weakening, which is being reluctant because of you know, compassion or sometimes because of guilt, being reluctant to um, apply the same standards of evaluation to an activist argument as you would do to any other. So you fail to um, call out faults in logic and you fail to carry out, call out cherry picking of facts, for example. And there's also conscious self-censorship, which is either through your agreeing that, yeah, if you say anything complex, it's going to potentially risk the advances of the movement. Or perhaps, you know, more insidiously, through the fear of losing the support of other activists uh, and colleagues. And here I think it's necessary to note the special vulnerability in these cases of adjectival work, adjectival bioethics, where very often the bioethicist is an insider to that experience. You're a woman in feminist bioethics. You're a, dis a disabled person in disability bioethics. And here losing the support of the activist community can mean not just becoming unpopular, um, but possibly the loss of a community um, that one is part of. Uh, in a way that can be both, um, it can be professionally damaging, but it can also be personally devastating. And for a time for me, my disagreement that prenatal testing is always and inevitably discriminatory and eugenic got me disinvited from conferences. Um, I can see the same thing looming uh, about voluntary assisted dying, actually. Um, but much worse was losing friends who I've known and worked with for decades. And moreover, I think we're 20 years ago, so the price for going against an orthodoxy, whether that's an academic orthodoxy or an activist orthodoxy, the price might be dropping off your colleagues' Christmas card list. Um, today, it can mean assassination by social media. Um, and again, we know that minorities, Black, Indigenous women, so on, are more vulnerable to that. So for the academic bioethicist and for this particular disability uh, bioethicist, the question then becomes, you know, what, what am I doing here? Uh, where, where do my allegiances lie? There are two main strands historically in thinking about what we're doing in the academy, what we're doing when we seek knowledge in any field, including bioethics. On the one hand, and this is the tradition of um, kind of moral philosophy that bioethics uh, grew up out of. On that tradition, there's um, it's the detached search for objective truth. Um, Brock, a writer on this, said that what we ought to be doing is, quote, follow arguments and evidence where they lead without regard to the social consequences of doing so. And that tradition sees political engagement as a threat to this. So from this point of view, disability bioethics needs, in a sense, to bracket off the effects of any worries, any concerns about social risks will change. Otherwise, it becomes subject to those intellectual risks I was talking about a slide or two ago. But there's another tradition that characterizes um, all the academic fields that have grown out of an emancipatory movement, like feminist theory, like disability studies, um, like critical race theory, and so on. And that one says, that the real value of knowledge lies in the extent to which it transforms the world for the better. 
And aesthetically, it also, that tradition also tends to argue that the, the supposedly pure and detached knowledge of the first tradition uh, is in fact intensely political, um, because if it does nothing to change the status quo, what it's doing is reflecting the viewpoint of particular dominant social groups. I've argued in detail elsewhere, some of you would have read it, so this is all old hat, I'm sorry. Um, ultimately, bioethics is a normative practice. Because ethics of every kind is saying that there are normally better and worse ways of going about our lives, of practicing healthcare or implementing a new biomedical technology or whatever. And it's our job as ethicists to identify and justify those morally practical options. And I'd argue that as soon as we do that, we've made a commitment to one state of affairs over another. You know, even if it's only in our heads, if we never go out on the streets or sign a petition, we've already moved, we've made that shift. And that is, um, it may be a small step, but it's an irrevocable one away from the, the traditional ideal of total academic objectivity. And that means that there's no bright line dividing disability bioethics and disability activism. They are on something like a continuum, and most of us find our way at different points in our lives at different places along that continuum. But they're not the same thing. And at different points along the continuum, there are distinguishable priorities and distinguishable responsibilities. And here are a couple of the most important ones, I think relevant to our discussion today. First of all, I'm going to stick my neck out and say that an academic disability bioethicist, the ultimate responsibility is to the truth. That doesn't mean that activism isn't interested in the truth. It's just as we've seen that often its priorities are a little different. Also, where the concept of truth today um, isn't as unproblematic as it used to be, and we, we understand, for example, that material facts don't come at us unmediated. And we also understand that the moral strength of adjectival bioethics lies in recognizing that truth from a God's eye view um, isn't in reality accessible to us. And that the view from different perspectives is different. But that doesn't mean that material facts, biological and social facts, don't exist. You can have caveats about the tools at one's disposal to get at true knowledge and still agree that it's worth making at least you know, the best dab at it that you can. And what disability bioethics enables us to do is to ask some really critical questions like, who has the power to define true knowledge? Which disabled voices are silenced? Um, who do we need to listen to to understand this thing better? And so on. Asking those questions gets us closer to something approaching the truth, however politically inconvenient the answers might be. But actually, these questions are critical for activism too, because maybe they are politically, the answers may be politically inconvenient, but it's also possible that those answers will strengthen a case for justice or equality, so that it doesn't collapse at some point in the future when it comes under stronger attack. And that lack of a clear demarcation between academic bioethics and disability activism also leads me to the bold statement that whatever their priorities, whether they call themselves normative or theoretical, whether they're really way down on the activist spectrum there, 
bioethicists don't have the luxury of being naive about the real-life consequences of their normative claims. We have to keep them in mind. As I said earlier, bioethics feeds sometimes very directly into healthcare policy, healthcare practice, public discourse. And that's why I raised earlier the problem of disability theories that are, you know, they're thought-provoking, they're intriguing, they're challenging, et cetera, et cetera. Or they are positioned as being just ideas or, you know, just thought experiments. But in the context of bioethics, they are very likely to have real-life consequences and there have been examples of that. You know, however disconnected they are from the experienced reality of people with disability. As we've seen, one thing that activism sometimes has to do is focus very narrowly on very defined goals. If it's a particular campaign, a particular um, vote that, that needs to be achieved. Disability bioethicists, all bioethicists, I think, by contrast, have a responsibility always to think beyond the immediate focus. Not all the time, but at some point along the way, think beyond the immediate focus to consider in particular what to do when rights and, and, um, and interests come into conflict. So if I go back to the example of prenatal uh, selective technologies to avoid anomaly, there is, as you know, a very strong disability critique uh, about testing and selecting technologies, and particularly those that lead to selective termination. Arguments about disabled people's right to existence as disabled sometimes bang right up against arguments about women's rights to bodily autonomy, no right to choose. We expect disability bioethicists to understand the disability critique and the experience base that it comes from, but also to take on responsibility of working through the implications of those views for all kinds of disabled people, for their families, for institutions uh, of health and social care, for other stakeholders and other rights holders um, in society. So I said um, I backed away from the idea of ending with some recommendation. They, they've been downgraded to observations here <laughs> about how disability bioethics can maybe best support disability activism towards achieving those social justice goals. My thoughts are that academic bioethics and activism, as I've said, aren't separate things. They do form a continuum, but with priorities that shift according to where you are. Knowing your responsibilities, um, I mean, the important thing there is to know one's responsibilities and priorities and, and recognise where we are along that continuum at any one point or in any one piece of work. Disability bioethics also has the responsibility, as I've just said, to take the most comprehensive view possible of the potential consequences of our ethical thinking and judgments in the clinic, public health society as a whole. We can't expect disability activism to do that because it has other priorities and interests. Disability bioethics needs to be quite rigorous about remembering that political arguments and strategies aren't equivalent to truth claims and sometimes reminding others of that. I think disability bioethics best serves emancipatory goals of activism by being a critical friend to activism. And that's the kind of friend who will tell you honestly uh, that that haircut was a really, really bad idea. 
Sometimes our role will be to remind activism that oversimplification can be tactically effective, but that strong and enduring political claims need to be anchored in a complex reality if they are going to endure. And finally, sometimes speaking truth to the powerless is just as difficult and just as challenging as speaking truth to power. So the take home message for today is, well, it's complicated. <laughs> you sat through 50 minutes to learn this. <laughs> disability is complicated. And so is the join between the worlds of disability, bioethics and disability activism. And it's also, you know, it's effortful and challenging and frustrating and occasionally heartbreaking. But that shouldn't put us off, I think, the commitment to using both academic and activist skills to achieve a better knowledge about disability and also achieve justice for people with disability in healthcare and in research and in the wider world. So thank you for having me and thank you to Miles for having inspired these lectures. Thanks for listening to this special Miles Little lecture episode of the She Research Podcast. You can find a transcript of Professor Scully's talk linked in this episode's notes. SheePod is produced by She Network and edited by Madeline Goldberger. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks again for listening. Bye.